Hello and welcome to the Embodying Change podcast. My name is Melissa Pitotti, and this podcast is part of the CHS Alliance initiative to change our experience of power, culture, and well-being in aid organizations. There's a basic principle in the medical profession that I'm pretty sure you've heard about. It's called do no harm. But sometimes this fundamental commitment gets overshadowed by a different impulse results at all costs. In the course of responding to the 10th outbreak of Ebola in the Democratic Republic of Congo, some staff members of the World Health Organization committed sexual misconduct. Today, you'll hear me in a conversation with Dr. Gaia Kamhawage, who's working with the World Health Organization to take the lessons learned from this experience and prevent and respond sexual misconduct going forward. Dr. Guy and I talk about power and values, leadership and culture, and she gives some very practical ideas for what organizations can be doing. We even end on a high note that brought me some hope. With that said, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. All right, so I'd like to welcome to the podcast, Dr. Gaia Gam Hawage. Welcome. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so pleased to have you here today. You recently had a conversation with the executive director of CHS Alliance, Tanya Wood, and our uh, advisor for PSEAH, Preventing Sexual Exploitation and Abuse and Harassment, Colleen Rapneau. And they immediately came to me right after their conversation with you and said, we've got to invite you on the podcast. You've got a lot of interesting things to say as it relates to power culture well-being so welcome to the podcast thanks again it's such a pleasure and uh, just to say i'm a really big fan of chs alliance work and in fact we use many of your standards and tools to help us as we start this journey as well great i'm happy to hear it so for our listeners who might not be familiar with you and your work would you mind just to give us a, a little short introduction Absolutely. Uh, my name is Gaya Gamhengbuke. I'm a medical doctor by training and um, with qualifications in public health and international policymaking. I've been with the World Health Organization for 21 years, and I actually joined the Health Emergencies Program. And uh, I've had uh, various different roles across WHO, but mostly in health emergencies. Um, but um, in July last year, the Director General of the World Health Organization, Dr. Tedros, mm-hmm. um, asked whether I would take over a new area of work, mm-hmm. which at that time we called Prevention and Response to Sexual Exploitation, Abuse and Harassment. Mm-hmm. And as you and your listeners uh, will know, this came in the aftermath of uh, really serious and, and terrible allegations against our personnel, mm-hmm. but also personnel of other agencies. Uh, uh, of sexual exploitation and abuse during the 10th Ebola outbreak in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Mm -hmm. Um, And really, um, the director general took a very unique uh, approach to this. He uh, he commissioned an independent commission to look at these allegations, and uh, he decided that we would go totally transparent about what is happening. And he and I also feel that since our system didn't detect these cases, and, and you know there are more than 80 cases and maybe over 100 now, mm-hmm. um, that meant something was really broken in our mm-hmm. system and that mm-hmm. we had to do something very different. And he decided to ask me, since I 
knew a lot about the organization. I had worked in high-risk situations, and also I had experience in institutional. So um, here I am a year later doing that very, very, very challenging job. Ah, wonderful. So you're talking about uh, a system that seems to be broken and an interest in institutional change. Why do you think that organizational culture is an important component of the work you're doing today? Well, every day in in this job, I realize that culture is the key. And one of the big mistakes that many organizations, including mine, have made in the past, I believe, is they focus, when they focus, they focus on compliance. Compliance is absolutely necessary. I totally agree that compliance is necessary. And without compliance, there is no accountability, there is no trust. But really, this is about culture. And, And when we say culture, what I really mean is the, if you like, the total effect of the beliefs and norms that we have as a group. Mm-hmm. And it can be a group in WHO, but also it can be part of the humanitarian community. And, and how these norms and um, ideas that are common play out in habits and behaviors. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the most important thing. If we look at culture mm-hmm. as manifested by habits and behaviors and underpinned by a common set of beliefs and Beliefs as to what is normal, what is acceptable, what is right and wrong. Mm-hmm. So it's very easily, it's, it's, you go very easily into that. And, you know, I often say, and many experts say that sexual misconduct, and that's the term we're using for sexual exploitation, abuse and harassment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it is really about the sexual misconduct of our personnel, mm-hmm. right? And, and nobody has to be a lawyer to decide if <laughs> have to say oh I'm harassed or I'm abused it's sexual misconduct we are trying to address and sexual misconduct is is root is really based in the power differential Mm -hmm. and the exploitation of that power differential and in order to do that we know there is a power differential particularly in humanitarian situations in order for something terrible to happen somebody needs to exploit that so they must have an opportunity Mm-hmm. And they must perceive that nothing bad will happen to them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So a sense of impunity, mm-hmm. even if organizations say, oh, we have no, you know, we we have no tolerance. The reality is if people believe nothing is real to happen, it, it tends, it, unfortunately, can be human nature for misconduct. Absolutely. I, I'm learning more and more about um, some, uh, a recent book called Status Games talks about it in a way. Um, we all enter a space, let's say an organization <clears throat> as big as yours, <laughs> we enter a space. So first we want to come in and we want to get along, get along with everyone else. And then we want to get ahead. And there's always this idea of where you are in a power dynamic or in a status level. And some would say in, in the UN, it's very clear where you stand in some ways because there's um, a very clear a career orientation of where you stand. So in a sense, there's that, but then there's also the invisible stand of where you perhaps have some power or privilege in that space. And I, and I can imagine from your perspective, it's a huge arena um, to think about changing behaviors, changing habits, changing mindsets, when you have a huge um, array of so-called hidden rules, hidden um, hidden things that we, this is how we do things around here. So what, what is your approach now? And what, what, are you, what are you trying to do? You know, I, I think, first of all, we mustn't overcomplicate it, right? Mm-hmm. So 
one thing I really want to say is there's nothing wrong with having a hierarchy mm-hmm. or having power, mm-hmm. right? So, for example, I'm given power to do good. That's the that's the social contract. Mm-hmm. So let's let's forget about humanitarian context and WHO. If you take in a family, I'm I'm a mother, right? Mm-hmm. I have power over my children. Mm-hmm. I have power as to whether they are nurtured or abused. I have power over what they eat, what they do. But most mothers don't abuse that power. So power is not the problem. Mm-hmm. It's exploitation of power. And mm-hmm. and when does that happen? Mm-hmm. When does that happen? Apart from opportunity and a sense of impunity, mm-hmm. it happens when we focus on results at all costs without looking at values. And it was really interesting. You know, I, I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm very conscious. I'm very new to this particular field of sexual exploitation and mm-hmm. So I, I did a little bit of research and I looked at you know what are the traits that are. Um, if you like, promoted or defined for humanitarian workers and aid workers. There's 15. Not one talks about ethical behavior, mm. right? And then I went to the other section. Forbes also lists about 10 or 15. Not one about integrity or ethical. Mm. It's all about goal-orientated, results-orientated, communicating well, confidence, all of that. And we have seen in history repeatedly what happens when we, people become high-performant, without having a strong ethical foundation. And I bet you, if you ask any humanitarian worker or anybody in WHO, they would struggle to talk about the values that underpin our work. Humanitarians tend to do it better. Mm-hmm. They are able to uh, able to uh, talk about neutrality and impartiality and so on. Mm-hmm. But really, we're not really talking about the human values that underpin our work. So one of the things I've learned is focusing on results at any cost, which we do. Mm-hmm. So during the 10th Ebola outbreak, in, um, of course, this was what it was about. It was trying to stop a deadly uh, outbreak from spreading, from killing more people. And we did it in very insecure uh, circumstances with about 30 armed groups. We, uh, Several of our colleagues were shot and killed. So our focus was what? What are the numbers? How many are sick? How are mm-hmm. we stopping this? Mm-hmm. What is the security situation? In our rush and in a very good, very, uh, you know, worthwhile goal, mm-hmm. we did not pay enough attention to ethical behavior and our value. Clearly, uh, whether it's stated or not, our, our value, our bottom line value has to be do no harm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I'm a medical doctor. We are a health organization. Mm-hmm. I mean, this, I thought, was obvious to everybody, but it was not at the front of mind. Of course, hindsight is twenty twenty, mm-hmm. and I am a humanitarian at heart, and I understand that most people who work in the humanitarian space are doing it ethically. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm not brushing everybody with the same. Uh, you know, I'm not painting everybody with the same brush. But even if we have one person mm-hmm. and one incidence of sexual exploitation and abuse, and also sexual harassment of our own workforce, this is unacceptable. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's really uh, basically about right and wrong, but without being moralistic or religious, right? Mm -hmm. So how do we get to the space when WHO has people from about 150 countries Mm -hmm. working for us, culture? Unless we're strongly orientated to our common values, Mm -hmm. we can lose our way. We really can. So, um, So I'm really conscious of how we are not preparing our workforce Mm -hmm. to focus on values. Mm -hmm. And do you think then one potential 
when, I don't know if I should do intervention, but one thing is to provide space for the workforce to consider the values and how it lines up with their own personal values and how it's actually lining up with the, the actual behaviors they're seeing. Absolutely. So, so on the simplest level, if you look, there, there will be people from countries where it's legal, acceptable and culturally appropriate to have marry people under 18. So basically marry children. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so that's their value, right? Mm -hmm. There are much broader group where they feel if prostitution is legal, that's okay. Right. There's a whole, whole lot of us, my generation, I'm 57, right. Men and women who were socialized in a very sexist society. Mm -hmm. So not just men behaving in a certain way, but women say, oh, yes, that's normal, right? That's okay. What do you expect our colleague, male colleagues to do in the field when they've been there for six months? Um, you know, and, and this seems normal. So, so there is that group. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, to answer your question, absolutely. I think we should be a values-based organization and each organization has mm -hmm. to be very explicit about their values. So what? how do we do that? We have to express that in our vacancy notices. Mm -hmm. We have to make sure everybody is inducted, not just as to the processes of the organizations, but how, what is the highest bar? And those are our core values, right? Mm -hmm. You can take the UN values, you can take your organization's values. None of them are wrong. Every one of them will help stop uh, do no harm, you know, they, they will help us do no harm. Um, so we have to be intentional about trainings, all of that. But research shows that it's when leadership is vocal, explicit and sincere about this, that employees and staff will start to take it seriously. Basically, what you pay attention to is what grows. It's like exercise. If you work your upper body, you know, your your arms uh, become stronger. If you use your legs, they become stronger. So whatever we focus on mm -hmm. becomes stronger. So, so that's the first thing. The second is exactly as you said, how do we create spaces mm -hmm. where people can talk this through? Because this is not black and white. No. You and I can read a code of conduct and understand it in different ways. Mm -hmm. So how can we create safe spaces, mm -hmm. psychological safety mm -hmm. for people to speak up? I mean, I'm very happy to say when I have webinars now, I have up to 3,000 people who join live and give comments and ask very difficult questions, not anonymously, mm. but with their names. So this is telling me that actually, mm -hmm. listen, people are not happy about the status quo, and they really do want to talk about this. Um, so, so, you know, we one thing is not enough. It has to be a set of things from leadership to discussions in teams. Another thing we've done in WHO mm -hmm. this year, been a little draconian actually uh, we've asked we've obliged we made it compulsory for every team across the organization mm -hmm. to select a team objective related to this area of work mm -hmm. and they're very easy objectives it's about attending three out of six webinars mm -hmm. and having a discussion with your team it's about creating a safe space for people to speak up mm -hmm. it's about if you're operational in the field looking at our 10 core activities to safeguard against sexual misconduct. So mm -hmm. everybody, every team has had to select this during our goals week in February. Mm -hmm. And now um, at the end of the year, they will be assessed against it. Mm -hmm. So in a way, we are forcing people to have a conversation, mm -hmm. not to take on beliefs, but really to have the space mm -hmm. to say this is important. We need time and space and safety to discuss it. 
Um, there, there's many more in the pipeline. I believe my work next year is going to be primarily on culture change and behavior change. Now that we, we're dealing with policy and investigations mm. and, you know, getting that, those systems in place, the culture change bit is very, very difficult. But, but, um, that's another thing with culture and culture change. You have to be very vocal. You have to be very clear and you have to be relentless. Mm-hmm. <laughs> never stop. Never take your foot off the brakes. That's right. We have in the CHS Alliance a work stream on organizational culture, and we're taking a long view because culture is so complex. As you say, you have to be vocal, clear, and relentless, and you have to invest a lot of time. It can't be done in one year. (laughs) I'm thinking 10 years minimum, but no one wants in the humanitarian sector where you, you're responding to emergency, no one wants to plan a 10-year project. But I'm thinking if you don't at least keep in mind a several-year project, because you're going to have slippage, you're going to have backpedaling, you're going to have mistakes, you need to have that kind of idea. This is going to be a long process. It's process. What you're saying is important because culture change isn't just about explicitly values-based uh, shift, right? Mm-hmm. So that which will take time and by the time we reach that 10 years our values may have changed as well Mm -hmm. so what what does it require it requires us to be reflective of our own behaviors you Mm -hmm. know just honestly to take time and say you know is this right Mm -hmm. and is this right within the system of my organization right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we really have to look at um this what, what i call psychological safety and and to be able to try things out and mm-hmm. to fake. You know, the, the issue, particularly with Western culture, and I and I speak in a, in a very, very provocative way. I'm Sri Lankan, but I moved to the UK when I was six years old. You know, I straddle many cultures. I spent a decade in China. But the thing with Western education, if I say not Western culture, Western socialization, is we're constantly uh, trying to avoid suffering and discomfort. Discomfort and suffering is where learning and growth takes place. So we have to, as individuals, as teams, as institutions, to be really radically honest to say, you know what, we have failed. We mm-hmm. have failed. So this is what the director general said, and this is what I say every day. Mm-hmm. WHO failed to take precautions. Forget culture. Take concrete precautions mm-hmm. to protect people in, in that particular response. Mm-hmm. We are responsible for such systemic uh, uh, abuse. We mm-hmm. really are. And we are trying to do everything to correct it. But you and I know, and I've worked with as a doctor, but also during my time time with Save the Children and other NGOs, mm-hmm. I've worked um, with victims and survivors of sexual abuse, exploitation. And really, they, whatever you do, it's not enough. It's not enough because this is life changing. So what the best thing we can do is to prevent. And if we as an organization do not take obvious precautions, mm-hmm. it Safeguarding our recruitment, safeguarding mm-hmm. our program, safeguard, you know, making mm-hmm. sure our personnel at least know what is right and wrong. And we have failed. So I think for WHO, we chose that place of discomfort and guilt and shame, not just the director general, but I think the whole organization mm-hmm. felt this. And many were shocked when we admitted we were at fault. Right. Mm-hmm. But that's the only place from which you can authentically grow. Mm-hmm. So I think. That has to be part of the culture too. Mm-hmm. The ability to accept that mm-hmm. we will fail, mm-hmm. but that is not an excuse for not being honest, 
transparent and, and trying to figure out a better way forward. So culture also relates to that. It also relates to, you know, one of the big cultural issues we have in our organization is, um, uh, uh, if you like, you know, people don't report, right? Or they did report. So we also see something, we think, well, this is not our business. And we did some research as to why this is. And people said, most people said they would not report. And they, and we said, why? And they said, well, either it's futile, we don't mm-hmm. believe the system works, mm-hmm. or we are af- afraid of retaliation. And in very subtle ways, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you have a short-term contract, you know, you just let the contract expire, you don't renew the contract, and nobody really knows about it. So so they're all, they exclude you from your favorite work. So, mm-hmm. so this bystander culture has to be addressed, mm-hmm. retaliation culture has to be addressed, this turning the other way and saying, well, this is not really my business has to change. Mm-hmm. So there are things that we can do to address that. So mm-hmm. we can fix the system. So there's increasing trust in it, which we have. Mm-hmm. So WHO has gone from an average of 350 days for a SEH investigation mm-hmm. to 120 days. Mm-hmm. We did that by scaling up our investigation capacity for sexual misconduct. Mm-hmm. 19 specialized um, investigators doing this and uh, this is Oxfam's benchmark 120 days and we decided we would try it and we've been meeting it all year this year we've got through a backlog and now we are processing now what has that created that has created a culture of strength so we are getting as many complaints in a week Mm-hmm. as we did in a year a few years ago wow wow wow, wow. So, so you know so what we can build up so now what am i seeing people say yes i want to speak up but you need to deal with uh, retaliation yes and i need the skills mm-hmm. the competencies to speak up respectfully how can i speak up without you know if you like hitting uh, hitting somebody you know i mean basically we are enraged right when we <laughs> And we've suppressed it for so long. Yeah. That, uh, so, so we are actually running uh, upstander trainings together with our staff association. We're going to start that in September, I think. Mm. Um, so to give people the skills, you know, what, how do I react in a situation like this? Mm-hmm. What are the skills I need to do something, including speak up respectfully? Yes. What is the formulation? How does one tell somebody? Yes. That I, I think, you know, this is harassment. I don't think you should be doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, especially when there is that power differential, right? Yes. So, so you know, culture can be, you know, also I don't like this idea that culture is inevitable. We are not culture. We make culture, Melissa. Yes. It's people who make culture. Mm-hmm. So I, I believe it's possible. And yes, it will take 10 years, but what will take 10 years? Mm-hmm. Not everything will take 10 years. No. And also the goalpost will change. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It changed in 2017 with the Me Too movement, right? And it will change in the next five years again. We will tolerate less and less of this. Yes. I that was a bit of a speech. I, I, no. I, I was on a roll. <laughs> that was good. It was bringing up so many things. So you mentioned the phrase psychological safety and the two things you need in a high trust organization, according to some experts, you need to have this idea of competence. So, for example, what you've done now. If I report, it will be followed up. So if I if I if I submit something now, the the investigation will happen in a shorter time, and I'm trusting that it will be handled confidentially. It will be so building the competence on one side, 
um, I can rely on my colleagues. And the second thing is the relational. So this is the, the idea, if I point out there is an issue, will I be ostracized? Will I be kicked out of the organization at some point? Or can I trust that my, my, my colleagues say, oh my God, we wanna do that, we wanna fix this. We don't wanna shoot the messenger. So, so this idea of fear came up in our research on speak up culture as the number one barrier to people coming forward when they see misconduct. And so I really like the fact that you're building space for people to practice or learn how to raise uh, an issue in a way that's respectful, but doesn't just let it go. We've seen this in our work in Culture Lab, that people have been in a way conditioned in how they communicate. So people who are studying things like nonviolent communication are reflecting on, oh, okay, the way that we're communicating has been conditioned, but we can we can express better what's under happening underneath the surface, the needs that are there and make requests that are there and it and retain our, our relationships. They don't we don't have to throw at our relationships. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, Melissa, I mean, I, I think it's really important what's happened in the past is many organizations embrace, for example, unconscious bias training. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But research shows unconscious bias training on its own actually has a negative impact on harassment. Harassment increases after that. Right. Mm-hmm. So the issue is this. So I'm a public health expert. So I, I was in West Africa, you know, uh, during Ebola there when we had no vaccine, you know, no treatment. Right. Yeah. Basically, we had no tools. And we were really trying doing the usual things, the epidemiological data, you know, clinical management. We, we were doing this. And, and it took a couple of years for everyone to figure out that one or two of these interventions alone wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. We actually had to bring everything together, community engagement, social mobilization, you know, food, transport, all of this had to come together. It's the same with this. If we do one thing, and often it's been the, the burden has been on the victims or survivors or people experiencing sexual misconduct, right? You have to report, you have to speak, and usually against power. Mm-hmm. So if you do just one thing, it doesn't work. So as you said, what we did is we set up a... We are strengthening the system. If they complain, they have better confidence something good will happen. By the way, we have an open, uh, openly accessible dashboard on our external website that mm. tracks every month the number of investigations by major duty station. Okay. Right? You can say how many in the Africa continent, how many here, how many at headquarters. So this transparency is about, so you're building up the systems. Mm-hmm. Then you empower people who are usually not in powerful positions. Mm-hmm to speak up. If you do only one without the other, then again, it is not a victim survivor centered approach because all the burden mm-hmm. is on the victim. And, and you know, another thing is in investigations. So in investigations, often people use beyond uh, all reasonable doubt uh, benchmark, mm-hmm. but in sexual misconduct, more advanced agencies use on the balance of probability, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so there are many things we can do technically, Usually, that together the impact is more than the sum of the parts, right? So it's not enough to empower potential victims. It's not in, enough to say, oh, you're the manager, you have all responsibility. So at the organizational level, at the manager level, at the individual level, at the human level, we have to em- fire them all up at the same time. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's why this sequential work doesn't work, you know. Let me do this, see what happens. Um, it really doesn't work. And I'm, I'm bringing an emergency mindset to it, I agree. But I experience with bringing it all together, 
mm-hmm. has actually started to be positive. And another indicator that it's positive, apart from numbers going up, is the pushback is going up. You know, so from people in positions of power, particularly men, they, you know, this is good, but it could be too much. And um, I don't know how to look at how to look at the faces of my female colleagues. I'm uncomfortable. And my answer to that is being sexually abused, harassed or raped is extremely uncomfortable for life. So deal with your discomfort. Oh, wow. Yes. Can you just say anything else about the fear factor? Because this is something I'm really struggling with. For example, in some of the spaces we've created, people want to get vulnerable and reveal some of the imperfections or dilemmas, but they don't want to uh, expose themselves to har- do no harm is applied to themselves, right? Yeah. Um, in, the, in the research that we've looked at, for example, in governing well, we looked at governing boards and when they're confronted with a situation, there's a decision calculus. Well, if we deal with the situation, which we should, we also are thinking about what will our donors say? Will this jeopardize, if it, if it leaks out, mm-hmm. if, we, if we're going to get to the root causes and, 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 and tackle some of the people involved who are in a very powerful position themselves, will this jeopardize our income for the future? Will it detract from this idea of results? This, if we do this, will it take, will the time taken here take away from results? Will it do, so we see all these um, systemic incentives to look at, look the other way. <laughs> um, and this fear that if we actually do what's required here, um, it could have other consequences for us. And then, of course, the people most directly involved, I'm scared of losing my job. <laughs> So, so if we take that level, I'm scared of losing my job. You know, as I said, you have to do several things. I mean, already with what we've done, we are seeing people are coming forward. Mm-hmm. They're, they're saying, you know what? I, I'm beginning to have trust in the system. So you have to build robust systems. And none of our investigation systems, disciplinary systems are up to par. They really are not. Right. And the one way to elevate that is to be transparent. So, for example, if we're transparent about how many reports, how many investigations, and as we get to disciplinary measures, how many disciplinary measures, that will build trust, right? So why is it I can walk into a a police station in Switzerland, Geneva, but as a Sri Lankan, I would probably not walk into a police station in in Colombo, Sri Lanka, right? It's because I'm the same person, right? It's because I trust one system and I don't trust another system. So you, we have to be radical about getting the organization to create its systems. And people will come. I'm telling you, people will come because I know people are coming and people are speaking up, right? Mm-hmm. In fact, to the point that people say too much being spoken. So I think that will happen. Mm-hmm. We have to strengthen our um, retaliation policies and implement them. So mm-hmm. what we are doing is we are reworking all of our policies. Mm-hmm. We are reworking our, our retaliation, protection from retaliation policy. Mm-hmm. We are reworking, actually creating a new policy. And I think it's the first in the UN, bringing sexual exploitation and abuse together with sexual harassment and really implementing zero tolerance for that. Mm-hmm. Um, then uh, we are actually blacklisting um, anybody who's uh, who, against whom charges are substantiated. So they cannot. So, so people are beginning to say this. It works. There's consequences. So I think in that sense. Um, and uh, yes, but of course, this fear won't go away unless we, it's an iterative cycle. But in terms of organizations, Melissa, I think it's outrageous, unacceptable, and there is no excuse for an organization to hide, if you like, 
mm-hmm. this kind of data. And if donors, uh, you know, punish us for this, we should mm-hmm. speak out. Mm-hmm. When I first started, I warned all of our member states and our donors that our cases will go up, right? Yes. So we, we have underreporting. So please, you know, you cannot punish us for this. So I'm no. very, very explicit about it. Mm-hmm. Every quarter, I speak to all 194 WHO member states, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And we tell them where we are, but we don't just tell them where we progress. We tell mm-hmm. them where the problems are mm-hmm. and where the systemic problems are across the system. Mm-hmm. So I know of organizations who don't want to release their data mm-hmm. uh, because of uh, a fear of bad reputation or donors. Mm-hmm. But what are you doing when you do that? You're not getting assistance and support to victims and you are actually creating a hell for yourself. Yeah. You're just digging yourself in deeper and you are allowing your broken system to break some more. So, you know, on the long run, transparency, humility, honesty is the best key. Just we are in a 70, 80 year old experiment that's called the UN, right? Mm-hmm. We've gone over a long time. It, it's quite okay and encouraged for us to be objective and say when things don't work and when things need to change. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I really believe that if we hide things for reputation's sake or fear of lack of funding, mm-hmm. that, that's a really, um, that's a wrong thing to do. That is absolutely wrong because it harms everybody, including yourself. We just have to keep talking with donors and, and keep saying no. If we find you punishing agencies that, yeah. uh, that are, you know, being transparent, then we also will not work with you. That is it. Yes, our next, uh, we've done, we've done a, a project called Working Well, based on interviews of people that are aid workers, and then Leading Well, based on CEO interviews, Governing Well, based on Governing Board, and our next project is called Funding Well. Okay, good. And we'd like to um, engage donors, like you're saying, talk to donors about the messages, the mixed messages that might be coming across and unintentionally or intentionally, and this idea, can we work together because we're all in this ecosystem together? And we need to reinforce each other rather than um, incentivize behavior that creates um, these kind of hidden dynamics that are are, are causing harm. Uh, WHO has adopted, like other agencies, what we call a harmonized donor agreement mm. of, of 15, I think, biggest donors and their member states, right? So you get the UK, mm. the US, Australia, Denmark, mm. Netherlands, all of them. We agree with them. Um, that we will adhere to the higher standards. So the IASC standards, uh, implementing the uh, implementing partners protocol, all of these things mm-hmm. as preventive measures. We mm-hmm. also agree that we will be transparent and we will um, report to the UN. Um, I report, but mm-hmm. uh, that's an annual reporting. But uh, that if there are uh, incidents that we would also be transparent with them, right? To the uh, to within a context so that we don't uh, disclose um, confidentiality. Mm-hmm. But I think donors donors are like us; they run their own countries too. They understand unless we become transparent, mm-hmm. we have to reward honesty, not punish honesty. And yes. Honesty. And I think they're they're willing; they're really willing to do this. But they want to be confident that we are taking safeguarding measures? Are we assessing the risks of SEAH? Are we looking at the risks from the influx of personnel during humanitarian crisis? Are we screening? Are we briefing? Are we training? Are they signing codes of conduct, right? Are there reporting mechanisms? But most importantly, 
are we taking action once reports come in and not just for investigation, but for disciplinary measures? So oh, the only thing we can be held accountable for is for doing all of that. Mm-hmm. We are not saying there will be zero cases, right? No. Our job is to do all of that as an organization and then deal with whatever is there, but deal with it in a victim survivor centered approach, deal with it fairly, justly, and that includes speed, that does not include letting cases run on for three years, which they often do in the system. Um, and it's about giving immediate, timely, sustained support to victims and survivors, mm-hmm. irrespective of whether there is an investigation or evidence that they had experienced this. So I think if we do that, donors have to be okay with this. Donors are like us. They're not different from us. Have you learned anything through this work uh, that surprised you? Oh, God, every day I'm surprised. (laughs) Uh, Luckily, I I, I have a learning mindset, you know. (laughs) And as I said, you know, discomfort, crisis, Uh these are the places where we grow, right? And and Mm -hmm. I'm a true humanitarian in that I thrive in situations like that. So what have I learned? I mean, many, many things. Um, More and more, I'm surprised at the extent of the differences in perception between people in power and people who don't have power. It's incredible. Mm -hmm. It can be between men and women. It can be Mm -hmm. between internationals and nationals. It can be Mm -hmm. between professional staff and assistants. You know, know, it's amazing it's like we're in parallel universes right it's just so what that tells me is i have to facilitate these interactions and conversations and get people to listen to each other Mm. um i think i'm really shocked that particularly in an organization that is that used to be at least made up of mainly doctors that we forget this ultimate principle of do no harm Mm -hmm. I'm, i'm really shocked and I think in the humanitarian space, you know, lots of people have researched on what they call the savior uh, mentality. You know, we are here to serve. We are privileged. We're doing noble work. So in a way, we are in, you know, whatever we do is is OK. You know, um, uh, I paid that woman more than other people. You know, I mean, the rationalization mm-hmm. that people tell me, it, it's incredible. I mean, I. I, I try to, I'm also a certified trained coach, so I try mm-hmm. not to show my reactions too much, but I use it as a learning opportunity. And um, my own disappointment that the system has taken so long. If you look at when this sort of hit the you know, media in 2002, mm-hmm. it's 20 years. It's 19 years since the Secretary General's bulletin on this. Mm-hmm. And I'm really disappointed at how much more we should be doing. I'm not saying, and people will say, oh, we've done this, we've done that. I agree. But the Mm -hmm. thing is, there's so much fundamental stuff that we Mm -hmm. haven't done. So that's my main disappointment, if you like. And I I was surprised by that. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at the surface of particularly big organization, it looks like they're doing everything, right? If you look at their websites. Uh, So so I'm really surprised. But I'm speaking from a victim's perspective. Centered point of view. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. speaking from the disempowered, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, for me too, I can list you a hundred things that I've achieved and that which has achieved. But what is left to achieve is more important than what we have achieved. I think in a situation like this, um, it's not a matter of yeah. So, so I think that those are the three things that have really surprised me mm-hmm. on an intellectual, but also a very personal level. Yeah, we have a lot of people that we work with 
in the CHS Alliance work on organizational culture and staff well-being. And some people end up burning out or dropping out um, because there's this constant dissonance. Like we have these stated values, but then we see what happens. And then like you're saying, we have different perceptions of problem. We, we see a problem here. We present it and, and the people that we're presenting it to are like, that's not really something that is my lived experience. I'm not really seeing that. I don't really see that as an issue. So this kind of disconnect with the values and then also the understanding and then this idea of, aren't we all coming from the same place that we want to relieve suffering, but actually some of us are creating suffering. So how do you resource yourself to stay motivated when a lot of this um, resistance or inertia or status quo, it doesn't seem to push, um, it doesn't seem to move as fast as you think is it's necessary how do you resource yourself to keep going i think the first is to have perspective to to Mm -hmm. understand that we work in systems organizations and systems if you take the humanitarian system if you take the un we work in systems that were created what 78 years many years ago the humanitarian system goes back even longer but even the un is set what nearly 80 years right who is going to be 75 next year so to understand that our organizations were created in a particular culture in a particular set of values and and um, social norms and we have to understand that the reality of today is very different with communication, with people understanding their own rights, the right to just be recognized as person and not be exploited, right? We didn't have that understanding uh, in a personal way in the 1950s with social media and, and, you know, actually have such a proliferation of ideas that I think we are, it's to acknowledge we're in a different era. Mm -hmm. And where does that take us, right? So we can't be the same worker bees we were in the 50s and 60s. This is not possible, right? So so what does that mean? It's to acknowledge that the discomfort we're feeling is okay. Actually, you should feel upset Mm. by what is happening. (laughs) And it is not for you to suppress it and internalize it and burn out, which is what happens to 99% of people, Mm. right? Most of us in the system are burnt out to a certain degree. The second is that we have a responsibility to challenge the system in constructive ways, in social ways, right? Mm. And, And this is why we need the trust in the systems, but also the competencies to speak up and so on. So, so we need to, it's actually part of my job to speak mm-hmm. out if something is wrong, right? Um, and I think, you know, I think we should be demanding ourselves to change, our organizations to change. I mean, organizations and systems are not static, they're dynamic too. How do they change? Mm-hmm. How do they become the way they are, right? Somebody pushed it along this direction. Mm-hmm. But what I'm hearing is most people are dissatisfied. So yes. why not we push it in another direction? Mm-hmm. And that's where organizations such as yours and even mine come in mm-hmm. because we have that convening power. We have a duty not to say this is how it should go. Obviously, mm-hmm. I'm going to say right and wrong. I mean, exploiting, abusing, and harassing people is wrong. So zero yes. topic. Right. right. In terms of how we evolve, we can facilitate those conversations we can be the multipliers of the messages we are getting based on that value system. So your job isn't just coming and filling in your terms of reference. Your job is also to be fully human and to be present, 
to be uncomfortable and to do something constructively and safely, please, with that discomfort. And if we don't do that, we are just cogs in a that ultimately is not going to help anybody, right? So if we, as a you as an alliance, we as a powerful UN agency, right? Mm -hmm. If we cannot talk about these things, well, then we might as well go and do another job. I really <laughs> another job. Nice way to wrap us up on a happy note. I think uh, there is, in a sense, energy that we can get from each other. Um, some in our culture lab, there are people who are trying to change cultures and organizations. They were saying we feel a little bit lonely sometimes within our organizations. We feel a bit lost sometimes in trying to get new ideas. But in a sense, we feel the need for energy and coming together gives us that energy, even though it's a, a long, long journey. It's a hard journey. It's uncomfortable. If we're doing it together, it makes it so much more bearable. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, Melissa, everybody should just ask and answer why. Why are we doing this? Not what are we doing? Right? Yes. Right. And I think that's the question that energizes you. You know, you, you can be down, you can be disappointed. My goodness, I have my days. But then I say, why am I doing this? Why is this important? Why is this central, critical, essential to our mm -hmm. memory? And if you answer that, you will find the energy to go on. And, and you're right. It is about, it's a social movement, right? And social mm -hmm. movements are created, not because we agree on everything, but we are going in the same direction. Something resonates deeply within mm -hmm. us. And that is reflected in our shared energy and the energy we can get from each other. So I must say, Melissa, I've got a lot of energy from this conversation. So I really <laughs> me want to too. thank you guys for giving me energy. How can our listeners get to know you and your work better because I have a feeling that we're going to be seeing more of you and your organization, your team, all the great things you're um, trying to accomplish. I think we're going to be connecting again in the future. So um, how can people get to see more of your work? Well, I think if you just go on Google and you put WHO and prevention and response to sexual exploitation, it'll take us to our website. But Melissa, I want to be very honest. I've not work too much on communicating about the great work we're doing. Because mm. Exactly for the reason I said before. Mm. There is a lot more to be done. Mm -hmm. You know, our actions should speak louder than words. Yes. I, I understand communication. I was a former journalist. I was a former head of corporate communications for WHO. Mm -hmm. But I have been intentional about not, mm -hmm. you know, communicating our success. What I want to do is to meet and talk this way with like-minded people or people who have a concern. We may not yes. be like-minded, but I want to have a conversation and yes. I don't really want to do communication at the moment no. because I'm no. still ashamed of where we are, if I'm honest. <laughs> and I don't want to give the impression we've, we've made great progress. We have started on a long journey. What I'm looking for is coalitions of yes. people. And, and I'm happy to um, post a lot more on LinkedIn mm -hmm. and others under, you know, under my name. But my director general, Dr. Tedros, is the same. He says, mm -hmm. you know, don't worry about telling people what we're doing. Just get the job done. <laughs> yeah. and, and I really, and I take his words to heart. And, and I must say it is, he has extraordinary leadership for this. Mm -hmm. um, and and I, he is the kind of man, I can tell him a story about a victim. And he, he just is, he's just fixed by the suffering. And he really basically has given me immense space to make 
the changes that are needed. And that kind of leadership is essential. And uh, so I, I really want to acknowledge his role in all of this. Well, thank you so much, Gaia. It's been a pleasure. Um, we will have, hopefully in, in 2023, a global gathering of people like yourselves who are working on this to, to reconnect. And so you'll definitely be invited. Thank you so much for your time and good luck and take care. Thank you uh, as we move forward together. And thanks to all the listeners and uh, I hope we will be talking together much, much more in different fora. Thank you. You've been listening to Melissa Pitati in conversation with Dr. Gaia Gamhawage. I love the ideas she shared. I'm energized by her call to action. I want to thank her for sharing her time and her insights. And I look forward to reconnecting with her in the future to see how it's going for her and the World Health Organization. A big thanks to our editor, Ziada Abayid, to the CHS Alliance members, and to everyone who's been supporting this initiative and this podcast. We will soon be back with another episode exploring embodying change. Till then, take care and be compassionate with yourself.